very safe, where can we run to? The answer is probably going to be nowhere. The unique horror of a nuclear war is that it can affect every inch of the globe, every nook and cranny, every isolated hamlet and distant meadow and forbidding mountain peak. The nuclear blast wave and firestorms might not reach these far-flung places, but fallout certainly can. Fallout goes wherever the weather takes it. Look at the novel On the Beach, later made into a film with Gregory Peck and Ava Gardner. Set in peaceful, innocent Australia, whose people had nothing to do with the dreadful nuclear war in the Northern Hemisphere, but that war created so much fallout that it's now drifting, drifting slowly across the whole globe and will eventually reach the safe and sunny Australians. Nowhere is safe. And yet, even though we know this, we can't help thinking, but where would we run to? Even though we know it's pointless, it's probably just our sad little instincts, our pathetic scramble to live, to try and outsmart a nuclear holocaust. We would probably still, if we had the time, more than a four minute warning, try and run. In Britain, thoughts often turn west. You would flee into the far west country, into Devon or Cornwall at the very tip of England, or into Wales, or into the Scottish Western Isles. Go west. West is rural. West is away from the continent, away from the Soviet Union. But what if you keep going west, across the sea and into Ireland? If they'd accept a bunch of British refugees, would we find any kind of safety from nuclear war in Ireland? Ireland is rarely mentioned in Cold War writing, but thanks to a Twitter exchange I had last week, I found some very interesting articles about the country and how it might fare in nuclear war. And I also, thanks to one of my kind patrons, Phil Catling, have a copy of Ireland's civil defence booklet, their equivalent to Protect and Survive. So let's ask if there was something unique about Ireland's geography which would have made it safe in a nuclear war, and how did they prepare their people for possible nuclear war? This is the Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. There have been lots of articles recently about the Silicon Valley rich kids and billionaires buying luxury bunkers and hideaways in places like New Zealand in case the balloon goes up, in case it all kicks off. Now, if they're fleeing nuclear war, then of course that makes sense. But if on the beach has any accuracy, then as we know, fallout might still get them. So is there such a thing as a place above ground which could be safe from fallout? Once again, a novel gives us that very scenario. Zed for Zachariah by Robert C. O'Brien is a class as a young adult novel. And in Zed for Zachariah, I won't give any spoilers, but the premise is there has been a nuclear war and there is one survivor, a young girl called Anne, and she's living in a valley. She assumes she's alone. There is no one there. There is no one on the horizon. There are no animals, no dogs, no birds. There's nothing. So she assumes she's the only survivor. She can't understand why, of course. She's only 16. All she knows is there's no one there anymore. It's just her. However, one day, a chap comes over the horizon wearing a radiation suit, which would be a terrifying sight. And in a nutshell, what has happened is 
He is a scientist, uh, which is quite useful for the plot, and he is able to theorise that the valley has offered survival because there are unique geographical circumstances, which means the valley has basically its own kind of weather system. So it has a self-contained weather system. But the fact is, this valley is able to live, the plants are green, the air is clear, the water is drinkable, and it's because it has created its own weather. Now, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? That's it's a novel, of course, it's made up. But maybe you could find somewhere, if you looked at geography and um, science and meteorological charts and the lie of the land, maybe you could work out where was most resistant to fallout. Now, some, some science geeks have done this, and their verdict was place most likely to survive a nuclear war by being relatively free of fallout would be, yes, you guessed it, Ireland, specifically Cork. According to the Irish Times, County Cork was dubbed, quote, the safest place in Europe. So what's so special about it? In 1962, Esquire magazine assessed the nine safest places to live or to flee to in the event of nuclear war. Depressingly, for most of my listeners, only three of them were in the Northern Hemisphere. Those were Eureka in California, Guadalajara in Mexico and County Cork in Ireland. Cork was chosen because of its prevailing currents and wind patterns and also, as Esquire noted... Quote, Ireland now has only half as many people as it fed a century ago. I assume that's a reference to the Irish famine. Cork also had a refinery, shipyards and new industries, which, quote, have been built by thriving West German companies as insurance of company survival in the event of nuclear war. So West Germany recognised the supposed safety of Cork as did the Swiss government, who, according to the Irish Times, intended to hide all their gold there if nuclear war seemed imminent. This top-secret plan was being arranged by a Colonel Albert Bachmann, but, according to the paper, quote, the story goes that he had a pint too many in one of the local bars, and then it was no longer a secret, so the plan was scrapped. Now, even if County Cork had managed to stay free of fallout whilst the rest of us withered and died, the Irish government were still obliged to issue civil defence advice to the population. After all, not everyone in Ireland is uh, in County Cork with its potentially magical qualities. And so, just like uh, Britain's infamous Protect and Survive booklet, the Irish government issued a booklet to households across the country Uh, According to an Irish speaker on Twitter who kindly translated it for me, it is simply called Civil Defence Death Life, which is a very blunt title. And that blunt title certainly mirrors the contents inside. The booklet uh, is longer than Protect and Survive and is far more honest, brutal and practical than its more famous British um, companion. Dare I say, far more useful. Some might say no little paper booklet can be of any use in a nuclear war. But arguably Ireland, if it's not directly involved and given that a lot of it is rural, maybe there could be some safety in bits of Ireland. And so this booklet, which does devote a lot of time and attention to rural uh, households and how they can protect themselves and their animals, it could actually have been quite useful. 
And so it deserves to be taken seriously. And like Protect and Survive, which is <laughs> relentlessly mocked. <laughs> <laughs> so let's look inside. Because Ireland has a romantic, warm, friendly image, you might think its civil defence book would be full of reassuring advice delivered by an Irish mammy with a twinkle in her eye. I'm joking, obviously, but even so, I have to admit there is a grain of truth in that. I think I was expecting the Irish advice to be somehow softer, which I know doesn't make sense. Ireland is so close to Britain, and Britain was very obviously for it in a nuclear war. Uh, Google Maps tells me that Liverpool, a huge industrial city and port and an obvious nuclear target, is just 142 miles from Dublin. They practically wave at one another across the Irish Sea. And yet there is still this perception that Ireland will somehow be safer and softer and kinder. I know that's sentimental nonsense. It's probably something to do with my gran singing Danny Boy to me when I was a wee girl in bed. It's probably, it's sentimental, that's what it is. But nonetheless, that was, even though I'm ashamed to admit it, there was a tiny bit of me that thought that Irish advice would somehow be softer. I'm sorry if I'm offending any Irish people out there. I don't mean anything bad by that. It's my silly perception based on my upbringing, which had a very sentimental view of Ireland. So don't judge me too harshly, please. Especially when you actually look at the booklet Because when you open it, you might initially agree with me. Because look at the pictures in it. It's full of Irish mammies. It's full of happy, efficient women in the kitchen taking care of the house, looking after the family. If you look at Britain's Protect and Survive, it's all very stark black and white pictures. If you look at the Soviet ones, they're actually quite frightening. None that I've seen have been jaunty. The pictures in the Irish one are jaunty very heavily shaded in green and the women all have lovely red hair all neatly set they've all got their skirts and shoes on they don't have you know i don't know what would you keep dirty old clothes that you keep around the house for maybe painting or doing decorating in maybe you'd get them out for a nuclear war these ladies don't have anything like that on they've got their proper clothes they're smart they're ready for family to come visiting so for example page four shows us a happy housewife in her apron she's dressed in green and she's checking her food stocks and topping up the water supply in the bath and uh, the bath water is also green for some reason. We see another housewife on page 20, she's also dressed in green with lovely red hair, perfectly set and she's making sure there's enough tea and butter in the cupboard. Page 44 gives us another housewife, again dressed in green, again lovely hair done and she's calmly putting out fires in the living room. She's not screaming and lashing about, she's just calmly sorting it out absolutely no sweat. And where's dad? Well there he is in a colourful picture on page seven. He's working out in the garden. It's only when you stop and pay close attention that you see he's not actually in the garden planting some flowers, sorting out the weeds. What's he doing there? Oh dear. He's actually building a makeshift toilet out of bins. So that's quite grim. But nonetheless, page 12 talks about getting back to normal. And it scolds you, reminding you to take your shoes off before you come into the house. And again, that very line of advice recalls comfort and 
the home it certainly reminds me of my gran having a lovely clean kitchen floor and not wanting us to run across it in our dirty shoes so she would shout at us to take our shoes off before we come into the house this booklet says the same and I don't know about you, but it immediately makes me think of of gran and home and comfort. Of course, the advice isn't anything about your gran having a nice shiny kitchen floor. It's the voice of the government warning you not to tread lethal fallout into your house. But nonetheless, there is that tiny little, whether it's on purpose or not, there is that little click in the head which immediately makes me think of comfort and home and my gran. So on the one hand, this booklet is colourful and soothing and familiar elements of it are, but on the other it's absolutely deadly serious and genuinely quite frightening. So I'll put some of these pictures on my Twitter account if you want to see them. Get me on Twitter under the name of at Julie A. McDowell. If you're not on Twitter I'll put them on my Facebook page which is called Nuclear Britain. But for now let's put the colourful pictures aside and let's look at the text, let's look closely, see past the pictures and see what they're actually telling us here. And this is where the horror comes out. The booklet starts making the same point we've discussed throughout this whole podcast, that for Ireland, it's probably going to be all about the fallout. And in very straightforward, blunt language, the booklet kicks off with that very point. I'll read to you from the first page. Nuclear weapons have added a new and deadly peril to modern war, radioactive fallout. It can affect every home and every farm in the country. It can come to us on the wind from other countries. It cannot be seen or felt, but we have instruments to tell us when it is about. In a nuclear war, thousands of our people could die from the effects of radioactive fallout, and thousands more could become seriously ill if they did not know how to protect themselves. Protection is not too difficult for the householder to provide for himself and his family. This booklet tells you how it can be done. Radioactive fallout being airborne shows no preference for city, town or countryside. It can menace all alike. The farmer, therefore, has to think of the hazard not only to himself and his family, but also to his livestock and crops. Fallout is unique in the way it can affect any part of the country, no matter how remote even if we are not otherwise affected by war. But we cannot assume that nuclear weapons will not, in a future war, be exploded in our country, either accidentally or deliberately. It goes on to say, in spite of the appalling destruction and loss of life which such a catastrophe would cause, it would still be possible for people to do a lot for their own safety and survival. Now again, The message that civil defence advice can help you in a nuclear war is ridiculed, as I've said, in Britain through Protect and Survive, and quite rightly so. In the thermonuclear age, I don't think anything can help you in Britain. But as we said, Ireland is different. Ireland wouldn't be expecting to be directly attacked with nuclear weapons. Therefore, advice about sheltering from fallout, it could save lives. And maybe that's why this booklet is surprisingly blunt in tone, especially when prepared, uh, compared to the useless Protect and Survive. Maybe it's very blunt and very honest because the writers and the Irish government knew that there was something to be gained here. We can actually save lives. We're not just printing out a little booklet because, oh, it's the done thing, it's expected, or oh, someone in the Home Office wants it done, blah, blah, blah. 
this was a genuine attempt to save lives in the um, event of nuclear war. I think that's, that explains the difference in tone, because it's definitely more harsh and uncompromising than Protect and Survive. Before we look at some more frightening examples, um, let me just quickly tell you about Ireland's alert system, which differs from ours. Obviously in this country, in Britain, and in Europe, North America, Soviet Union, etc., we would listen for the siren, and that meant, of course, incoming bombers or missiles. That meant you had minutes to go until impact. Ireland, not expecting to be directly hit, had a different system. So in Britain, for example, we had three warnings. There was the incoming air attack, then there was the fallout imminent warning, and then there was the all clear. It's safe to emerge from your shelter if you're alive. So we had three warnings. Uh, Ireland also had three different alerts, but they were different. Let me just describe them to you according to the descriptions in this booklet. First was national alert, and it says here indicating that war has broken out and that this country may become affected by fallout or indeed be hit by nuclear weapons. Then came advance warning, indicating that fallout is approaching your area but is not expected to arrive for about one hour. Then came final warning, indicating that fallout has started or is about to start in your area. When the national alert sounds in Ireland, if you're at work you may be advised to go home but those in essential services might have to stay at their posts. If you are stranded away from home or if you're at work a long distance from home and can't get back, then it says you will have to make your mind up where you're going to take cover and go there immediately. So I suppose ideally if war was deemed to be imminent, you would have made plans or arrangements. You know, you would know if it happens when I'm at work, I will go to a nearby hotel who've got a huge cellar and they'll pile us all in there or... I've got a friend in the town or city. You would have made your plans, I assume. So it says you will go there immediately. Managers of hotels at institutions should be prepared to provide protected accommodation for those in their care. On hearing the advance warning, you know that fallout is coming in about an hour. So at that point, if you haven't already done so, finish shielding the windows, it says, of your refuge room. That's brick up the windows, put planks across the windows, whatever you can to try and build up a barrier, same as Protect and Survive, actually, to keep the fallout out. The only reason that I think Protect and Survive is so useless because, yes, it offers that same advice, but that's in a house which is also expecting a nuclear missile and sandbags and planks of wood can't keep that out. And then on hearing the final warning, you know that fallout has started or is about to start. If you have fires in the grate or boilers, extinguish them. Turn off your water supply, bring your radio set with you into the fallout room. Again, same advice as Protect and Survive. Although this is different, it says here, yellow flags hung along roads will indicate final warning to motorists and other road users. I suppose that's because Ireland has obviously, there's a lot more of Ireland which is rural, and so people won't be in clustered in towns or villages as much as they are in, for example, Britain, and so perhaps might not hear uh, the final warning. So... Someone, some civil defence force, I assume, will bravely go out and hang yellow flags along the roads. And that is how people out in the countryside will know final warning has been issued. Now let's take a look at some of the more horrifying parts of the booklet. Well, not horrifying, but the more brutally honest parts. Long-term listeners to this podcast, or those who follow me on Twitter, will know that I 
love my dog, Zarbomba, and anything about pets in the Cold War planning always really upsets me. As we've said, the Irish booklet here is uncompromising and honest, and so yes, they tackle the question of pets. I'll read it to you. It talks about when, if and when, you're able to escape an area of heavy fallout, and either you escape in your own car, having been given instructions on where to go and when, or if you don't drive, the transport will arrive. I assume the transport means buses or coaches laid on by the government. But it says, you will have to leave behind many valuable possessions. Livestock will have to be left behind on the farms. And town dwellers will have to leave their domestic pets. I've done a podcast on that topic, the horrible topic of pets in nuclear war. I can't remember what it's called now, but the titles are all self-explanatory if you're brave enough to go back and listen to that one. Of course, I'm a town dweller. I go on about pets, but this uh, booklet has a whole chapter on dealing with farm animals. And just because cows aren't as cute as my little cavalier spaniel doesn't mean we shouldn't care about them. There is a very sad paragraph on the signs a farmer should look out for to check if his animals have radiation sickness. It says, these are the signs to watch out for. The animals are tired and lie down a lot. Their appetite decreases. Milk production falls off. Diarrhea and bleeding occur. Try to isolate sick animals. The flesh may not be dangerously affected by the radioactive material which the animals have swallowed. This radioactivity will be concentrated mainly in the bones, but will also be found in the intestines and blood. The bones and offal would be dangerous to use and should be buried. If necessary, the authorities would make special arrangements for slaughtering cattle. It also says the animals which were out in fallout will have suffered hidden damage from the radioactive rays given off by the dust. If the exposure was great, they may sicken and die in a few weeks. Even if they recover, they will never be worthwhile animals again. You should not slaughter them, however, unless you are officially advised to do so. This is just some grim stuff, isn't it? Right, let me give you one more horrible example from this booklet. I said in my last last week's podcast, which was about forced labour, that um, I quite enjoyed it. Um, I, I think I cracked a few daft jokes. Uh, there were a few little laughs, I hope you'll agree. Um, I kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> but with this week's, this topic, um, I don't know, I just feel, oh, my heart feels very heavy. Sometimes... I don't know whether it depends on my own mood or the subject matter, but sometimes you can, you know, bring a bit of black humour into it. But this one, this is just grim. I know we started off maybe poking a little fun at how the photograph, the pictures were all green, and how the cheery housewife had filled her bath with green water. It was looking a bit like um, the river in Boston. Uh, what is it, the Charles River, or is that Prague? I can't remember. Um, uh, they they put something into it on St Patrick's Day to turn it green. So, a bit of a laugh at that, and then as the booklet goes on, and as the nuclear war begins, of course, it becomes horrific, and now we find ourselves talking about the disposal of radioactive blood and bones. It's awful. Talking about farming, there are sections in the book about how to recognise plants which have been tainted by fallout, and animals which have undergone genetic mutations, and it says don't allow them to breed, because then... Your farmyard is going to have some ab- abnormal animals running about. It's just absolutely horrible. So let's have one more. <laughs> um, and this is a picture which... I think I've had this booklet on file now for about a year. And as soon as I saw this picture, it just lodged in my mind. It's really quite horrible. It's in the first aid section. Um, if you ever get a copy of this, it's on page 47. Although I'll put a picture of it on Twitter. Um, it's on 
handling and moving casualties. Uh, so this is advice on how to get an unconscious person out of a burning building or out of a building strewn with rubble. Of course, if they're unconscious, you can't walk them downstairs, you can't help them over the rubble, you'll have to drag them or lift them. So it says here, I'll just quote the short paragraph, on some occasions there will be no time to stretcher a casualty. You might have to move one from a burning building, for example, and you might have nobody to help you. The sketch, the one that frightens me, shows a method which would enable you to move an unconscious person, even if quite heavy. This cannot be applied when moving a casualty downstairs. Okay, um, I'll describe the picture to you. It's The caption of the picture is lift, crawl, lift, crawl. And it shows a man crawling along the floor trying to rescue an unconscious person. The unconscious person is lying underneath him. Their hands have been roped together and hooked round the rescuer's neck. So as the rescuer crawls along the floor, he's dragging this unconscious person along underneath him. I hope I'm describing that properly. It is quite horrible. It looks quite violent. It looks quite animal almost. And you're supposed to, with this, this person's hands hooked around your neck, lift and crawl, lift and crawl, and just get out of the... Well, you're doing this while the building's on fire, or while the building's absolutely filled with, with rubble, radioactive ash falling down through the, the holes in the roof. It's horrific, this picture. just I've never seen it before, except in this Irish booklet. It just, there's something about it. It's just so brutal. You know, ideally this person would be bundled onto a stretcher and properly secured, put in a neck brace, etc. But no, in this world, your hands are tied together with cord or rope and they're just hooked around this man's neck and he crawls along the floor with you bumping along underneath him. It's horrible. That really haunts me, that strange picture for some reason. So I'll put that on Twitter so you can share my discomfort. So yes, and we all thought, Irish advice would be nice and soft and reassuring. What nonsense. As I say, that's only because I was brought up in a Catholic family in Glasgow. I think almost everyone in Glasgow is um, descended from from Irish people, or lots of us are. Um, And so my family, my gran especially, have a very sentimental view towards Ireland. Gran was always, she isn't fit to go now, but she was always popping back and forth to Ireland to go and... I don't know, retreats in a, the town called Knock. She's always going to Knock with her wee friends from the chapel. So, yeah, very sentimental view of Ireland, which I must have ingested without even knowing it. And that's why I thought when I opened this booklet, oh, it's Ireland, it can't be horrific. You know, Ireland's nice, Ireland's wholesome, but this is even more brutal and forthright than Protect and Survive. But my theory is they were brutal and forthright because they thought if we tell it to people straight we might actually be able to save lives. Whereas protection survivors are useless. You know, they could just have put some... They could have put the lyrics to Little Bo Peep in it and that would have had the same effect. It would have been equally as useful. So that's my quick summary of Irish civil defence information. Hope it's been useful to you. As I say, I will put some pictures on Twitter and Facebook now so that you can see them and um, let me know your thoughts. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or on Facebook at my Nuclear Britain page or visit my website at juliemcdowell.com Let me also thank the people who support this podcast through Patreon. 
donating some money each month. If you want to chip in, go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And let me finish by giving a shout out to my supporters, Andrew Key, Angus McClellan, Ben Capper, Brian Outlaw, Claire Brennan, Colin McGee, Damien Ryan, Douglas Greenshields, Ewan McLeod, Gordy McNair, Jonathan Abelins, Lainey Peterson, Lee Pierce, Mary Freer, Paul Jonathan Viner, Paul Maxwell Walters, Peter Lee, Peter Mars, Phil Catling, Sarah Williams, Sean Judge, Sean Milson, Simon Allison, Steve Sace and Wynne Grant.